0: This is Robin Haddon, and you are listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton. Hello, hello, everyone. Yes, it's our birthday. (laughs)
1: This month, we have been revisiting the conversations I've had over the past two years with a host of guests, fans, friends and colleagues who remember the importance of David Cassidy in their lives. These are their stories. I'm your host, Louise Poynton. Thank you for downloading this podcast. And remember to click that subscribe button so you can be alerted when new episodes are released. If you've just found us, all episodes can be found on all major podcast platforms and in the links in the accompanying show notes. In this week's compilation, you will hear from people around the world who take a deep dive into what made David unique. We start with fan and broadcaster Joe Pavia. Joe has spent his career in broadcasting as a news anchor, news editor and presenter on radio in Canada. He interviewed David in 1990 after 20 years of being a fan of the Partridge family music. Joe shares how much that conversation meant to him and what it felt like to meet David a few weeks later at the record release party for the self-titled CD. At the end of our conversation, you will hear Joe's exclusive one-to-one broadcast interview with David. We started by talking about the importance of music in his life. How nice to see you.
2: How nice to see you.
1: <laughs> Has music always been an important part of your life?
2: Huge, huge. There is always a song um, twirling around in my head. Um, sometimes, you know, where we're in the middle of a conversation or I'm in the middle of a conversation with someone and they'll say something and I'll break out into tune, a tune based on a line that, uh, that they said, because it reminds me, uh, of a song. Yeah. Big time. And it was, like I said, the radio was always on either between, uh, the top 40 station, um, or my, uh, mother used to listen to mostly my mother, uh, an Italian music radio station out of Toronto. And my sisters bought a combination of 45s from um, English-speaking artists to Italian artists. So it, yeah, runs the the gamut now of, you know, sometimes a song comes on and I'll remember where I was.
1: So can you remember when you first heard David Cassidy's voice?
2: Oh, yeah, uh, Partridge Family. It was, we used to sing the Come On, Get Happy song. When uh, in the introduction, you know, with the egg breaking and the partridges coming out, um, and that was a show that we watched uh, faithfully. There's a family that plays guitar and sings and they travel around on a school bus. This is awesome. I I look back at the show. I think for me, there was the voice and the songs first, but actually probably not even first. Primarily, it was the hair, the clothes and the choker. And uh, the fact that, well, you know, he was pretty cool and he could sing. And I always thought he had a great voice so that when, and this is my initial reaction when I found out he was doing Blood Brothers with Sean Cassidy and Petula Clark, I thought, of course, that is perfect. Yeah, it was awesome. Like, what a What a fantastic voice that he had. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I think... He was put in that bubble of the Partridge family and I don't think he was ever able to get out of it. And then he had the David Cassidy's uh, album in 1990.
1: That was when you were able to interview him and you met him around that time, didn't you?
2: Yes, that was exciting because that was like my, um, um, if you call it closure for my childhood or a part of my childhood now in my adult years. Um, cause I will never forget the, um, uh, that time. So I was working at a radio station in Orangeville, Ontario, and we did a news magazine show. And a lot of the, a lot of the interviews, they were recorded ahead of time. It wasn't a live show. So we, we picked and, you know, picked a lot of local stuff and just interesting, um, that we thought that uh, listeners would like. It was a music director, a guy by the name of Vic. The one time he, he came in he said, um, do you want to interview David Cassidy? And I said, like from the Partridge family? Yeah. And I said, Yeah. And I said, oh, okay. So he's got a new album out. Here's the news release. And you know, I'll let you know what time they're available because he's doing a um, promotional thing. So I thought, holy crap, this is great. I wanna I wanna talk to that. I gotta talk to David Cassidy. Can't hardly wait to tell my sisters. So the one things, of course, I wanted to know was, uh, you know, I read the release uh, about his album. But the one thing I wanted to know is everything about the Partridge family. So I had all these like questions raring to go. And then um, the day of the interview, Vic, the music director, says, oh, by the way, don't ask any Partridge family questions. That And I said, Where are you, why not? He said, no, they just want to focus on the album uh, for this uh, promotional tour. And lying to myself was starting to be played on radios. There was a video that came out and I said, Oh, okay, well, there go all my questions. I also had questions about the album. And also when I was back, backpacked through Europe in about 1985, hmm. I believe it was, and I stayed at uh, in London, England, at a bed and breakfast. And at this bed and breakfast, there was a color, little color television in the room. We were watching a morning show and David Cassidy was on. I thought, oh my God, it's David Cassidy. <laughs> What's he doing here? Like, you know, what brought you, to, what brought you to the UK? What brought you to Great Britain? But uh, you know, basically like what drew you there? Yeah. I thought, you know what? I gotta ask him a question about the Partridge family. And you know, maybe I won't say Partridge family, Dave David Cassidy comes on and says, Hey, how are you? I was like, Oh my God, it's David Cassidy. And he says, Hey, how's it going? And you know, I starts off the interview. I thought, oh my God, he sounds like Keith Partridge. This is so, so cool. I get I, I know. I'm like 10 years old all over again. I thought, okay, I gotta throw in uh, a question about the Partridge family. And and I but I worded it really awkwardly as something about the show that you used to do in the 70s. And he said, "You know, the problem with with it," he said, "is is if I started talking about it now, I would talk about it all day." And I, thought, okay, fair enough. And it was a great answer.
1: Coming up now, your chance to hear Joe's exclusive one to one interview. I'm uh,
3: excited to hear about your latest uh, your latest record. I hope everything goes well.
4: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you um, adding the record and playing it. Um, it's been going great. I the um single just screaming up the charts in america and i understand here too so um it's great to be be welcomed back like that
3: i saw you on a bbc variety show about six years ago when i was in england and uh, you were singing your latest single at the time which was was doing well on the british pop charts uh, i want to ask you why did you travel to england for your musical comeback what is it about england because i know donny osmond went there too Well,
4: I went there because my writing partner at the time was British and lived there. His name was Alan Tarney. And I went there and recorded there, and that's where it was first released. And then it went to Europe. And the week my album went top 20 in England, um, before we came over here with it, um, my record company was bought up by another label, by a bigger record company, and they fired everyone. And I got into an ensuing two-year litigation with them. And um, ultimately, the record never came out in America. So I was rather disappointed, and uh, I went back to work in the theater and uh, assumed basically that I wasn't going to go and make records anymore. I just continued to write, and um, I started, I came back to L.A. after I finished in the West End in 87 and started writing, and I went on a radio show in L.A. and got three offers from three different labels after they heard the songs I had played, my demos, songs I had written, and um, I started making this record for Enigma. So, basically, this is it. I mean, it's the first record I've released in North America for 12 years.
3: hmm And the latest single is called Lying to Myself. Uh, yeah. Does the music on your newest project have more of a dance-oriented sound, or is it more rock-oriented?
4: Oh, I wouldn't say it's more dance-oriented. I would... Uh, um,
3: I, hate to, I hate to put a label on it. Uh, but just yeah, so it's a
4: difficult it. thing to do. I mean, there's a track... Um, I don't know. I'm no good with labels. <laughs> I, I, it's just... For me, it's... Um, It's probably the most revealing record about myself. Um, The songs are the most, um, I think, uh, open uh, and I think more revealing lyrically about who I am, and I suppose musically as well. It's a pretty aggressive record in that respect.
3: Tell me a bit about that. What do we hear about David Cassidy that we never knew before?
4: Well, um, I'd have to get into lyric by lyric through the songs, but about... Uh, what the human condition is all about, and I think my own fragility, fear, um, strength. Um, a lot of uh, there's a song called Boulevard of Broken Dreams, which is about kind of a semi autobiographical about um, Hollywood and fame. And um, I, I think that there's a song called Message to the World, which is more or less about people who are incarcerated and um, about people who are no longer in our consciousness, like Terry Waite, Terry Anderson, and the hostages, etc. I'm not it's, I'm not a terribly political guy, but I'm pretty moved by what's been going on um, with them, and certainly now with what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, it's certainly in my consciousness, and I think that it's important to just show as much and reveal as much about yourself as you possibly can. People get some insight as to who I am, and uh, there's a lot of up-tempo sort of rocking stuff, too, and line of myself is really uh, one of those, I think, tougher, more rock, pop records that I've ever made. And hopefully, um, I mean, the reaction thus far has been fantastic. And uh, it's just great to be back.
3: Are you getting asked a lot about the character you played in that uh, early 70s television show?
4: Well, um, I, I think initially people say, um, I know that you don't want to talk a lot about it. And uh, the truth is that I could talk all day about it, and I have talked a lot about it since I've done it. I'd rather talk about what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no problem with it. I really embraced it. And there's a song called "High Heel Sneakers" on my new album where I use even a little, a little sample of "I Think I Love You." <laughs> so um, I have good feelings about it. I have very good feelings about all of it. I just want to move on and talk about what I'm doing now, as opposed to what I did 15 years ago.
3: Well, moving on, David, uh, what's up for you in 1991? Do you have uh, any tours planned, or?
4: In fact, uh, yes, I'm going to do. I'm definitely going to come through America and uh, through Canada. Um, I hope to go actually around the world and tour with this album. You know, it's been um, a long time since I've been out on the road, and I'm really looking forward to doing that again. Uh, That's ultimately how you cut it or you don't. And um, the record's been so well received, and both critically and, I think, now um, commercially by the uh, radio. And and I I just hope that I can go out and play a lot of the, the current stuff and then consequently be able to do a lot of the old stuff. I know if I went to see David Cassidy, I'd want to see all of it and um, that's what I intend to do.
3: Well, David, do you have a band together now, or do you plan on asking a lot of the musicians that worked on your album to to tour with you?
4: Um, Yeah, I'm going to put musicians together. I mean, a lot of, I guess, the nucleus of the people that played on my record hopefully will go out with me, and um, a lot depends upon when I get back. I've been out on a promotional tour for six weeks, so I haven't done anything except um, the last couple days in Toronto. I I got a guitar up in my room and started playing again. You know, I've been out doing a city a day, so when you're traveling every day and you're doing interviews and talking and doing TV and radio. There's not a lot of time to do anything else. But um, that's what I intend to do. And hopefully after the new year, when the new album takes hold and people get a chance to hear it, that's what I'll be doing.
5: You are listening to The David Cassidy Connections.
1: My guest is former television news reporter and anchor Ken Owen. Ken talks about his passion for David's music since he was a boy and explains why he credits David with helping him emerge from a shy boy into a confident young man who spent almost 20 years working in television. In 1994, he interviewed David by a satellite and speaks about the importance of that encounter. He breaks down his favourite David recordings, observes how celebrity has changed and why we shall never see a superstar like David Cassidy again. We also talk about how the culture of news reporting has changed. But first, Ken explains how his passion for the Partridge family and David Cassidy's music all began.
5: Oh, it's, it's, it's impacted much of my life. It's funny. Um, and I was very shy. Yeah, David and Paul McCartney, I think, were um, really critical to kind of getting me out of my shell and, uh, you know, creating that thing which was in me, but I didn't know was there. Um, and I, you know, David, um, uh, I was just thinking as I was upstairs, uh, I, I always had some pity for him. And I, I mean that in the dearest way, uh, you know, he kind of was fed into the machine and, and never really escaped and, uh, and God, he, he flailed, he tried and, you know, most teen idols just go away or they do what Sean did and they, they find another thing that they're very good at, but, uh, yeah, but he was born to perform and it was, it was sad because once... He was kind of pigeonholed. He never was able to, even with Blood Brothers and we got great reviews, but uh, it was always, former Teen Idols, David Cassidy, you're, you're never not that thing.
1: Nobody mm-hmm. seemed to really accept him beyond this image. And I think he um, he spoke about that in your one and only interview with him.
5: <laughs> mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, and he, um, it, it's, it's hard. Well, we'll talk about this stuff because it's all, it's all very interesting. But yeah. I think there's also, you know, David had a, um, It doesn't matter. I'm straight. But uh, David had a very feminine side to him, too. I mean, I think that there was something in men and women that you could relate to that. It was kind of like he wasn't Donnie was, you know, Donnie was a a teenage kid. And I don't think he had the level of crazy that David had. David was um, David looked like he'd been dropped, you know, from a different planet. I mean, he he just he had a different way about him. David had a level of stardom that so few people. I, I don't think we'll see a star like David Cassidy again. To reach the kind of level David Cassidy did, David Cassidy was was essentially Elvis Presley reincarnate, um, the the power of television at that moment, and the marketing machine of teen magazines and record company and uh, everything in between the bubblegum cards. Uh, I just, I don't think we'll ever see that again. Besides just talent and uh, timing, I don't think culturally we can create a, an explosive that's that powerful. We're too fractured. And so we can, we can have many David Cassidy's and you can have people that, um, have great talent, but, and maybe people would just say, I think I love you. And the the times and the way we lived and the way we communicated and the way things were fed to us, uh, made something like his enormous success possible. And it was fueled crazy fire by his talent. We live in a Kardashian culture today. So you have people that are stars because they had sex in a hotel room or because they got drunk and fell down in the street, you know, or they, they put up stupid videos where they're naked or half naked or pretending they're naked or David Cassidy had to sing a song and it may not have been the song he wanted to sing. It may not have been the song that he wanted to be remembered by, but he had to show up, he had to do work, he had to continue doing work. That's how celebrity has changed. Now you can just be a moron and be called a celebrity. David Cassidy, Bobby Sherman, Ricky Nelson, the, the teen celebrities of their day, there was something that stood alongside of them. It wasn't their persona. Uh, David Cassidy could act. David Cassidy could sing like a lark. And so when, when people talk about, you know, well, we still have celebrities. Um, pardon me, they're just dumbass things. I mean, they're doing things that are designed to provoke responses and there are 15 second videos that you can just, you know, run over and over again.
1: New York horse trainer, Gary Contessa shared with David a love of horses and through their friendship, Gary trained a number of David's thoroughbreds. We had a thoroughly enjoyable and much longer conversation, but here Gary explains David's passion for racing.
6: David was a rock star that wanted to be a horse trainer and I'm a horse trainer that always wanted to be a rock star. And I did have, you know, I play guitar And I played with David many, many times. I played with Yvonne Elliman, Gloria Gaynor. I played with some greats, but my heart was in horse racing. So when David and I met, oh, it was like like a match made in heaven. David approached me. I had bought a horse at the Saratoga sale one year, and uh, David came up to me and said, ah, that was my horse. And I'm like, oh, cool, cool. And uh, I knew it was David Cassidy, but one thing I learned early on, people – Appreciate you more if you don't do the Starstruck thing with them. You know, if you just talk to him like they're a normal person, and I think he really loved that aspect of me. I treated him just like he was like my good friend, and we you know we hung out together and you know, always talked horses. always. He never wanted ever to talk music. Mm-hmm. We talked horses. We only talked music if something sparked it, but David wanted to talk horses all the time we never talked music and David would come to my barn he lived in Saratoga a stone's throw from the track you could see the track from his house he would come over to my barn every single day And he would sit at that table in front of my barn while I trained horses. And he'd walk out to the track with me sometimes. And we'd walk back together and he'd read the racing form. And he would talk about horses. He'd talk about breeding. He'd talk about this. He'd talk about that. We just became inseparable friends. He had a box right behind the governor's box at Saratoga, right at the finish line. And he'd go, come to my box today. We'll hang out. Now, Young girls would come by, oh, David, Oh, can I have your autograph, and this, that, and the other? But David didn't even want to be bothered. He wanted to talk horses. And he'd come to the winter circle with me and he'd come down to the paddock with me and we'd hang out all day at the races. We'd go riding together, horse riding together. We'd We'd attend sales together. We would buy horses together. And interestingly, we never talked about it. He didn't talk about his struggles with alcohol. He had them. I didn't judge. I didn't drink in front of him if I was with him.
1: When was the last time that you'd actually seen
6: him? I saw him about two weeks before he passed. And then he went down to Florida. And uh, and then, you know, and we just talked a few times during those two weeks. And, and David called me from the hospital. And he said, oh, man, I'm in the hospital. They don't like... They don't, They. I took a blood test and, and they don't like my liver enzymes and man, they're putting me through all these tests and I'm hoping to get out of here this week. And two days later, he passed and I'm like, I can't believe this. Yep. And uh, I was just like, I can't believe this. I can't believe David passed. My wife freaked out. You know, we just, everybody knew him freaked out because David went into that hospital just thinking, it was you know some kind of nonsense. You know, they're just going to put him through some tests. He didn't realize how dire the situation was.
1: See, after the ashes were were spread, you asked David for some help, didn't you?
6: I did. I talked to David all the time. Do you? I talked to him even now. I talked to him all the time. I'm like, David, boy, did I screw this up, man? What do you What do you think? You know, I, I talked to him all the time. I, I ran in a very big race shortly thereafter, and I said, David man, I take all the help I can get on this one because I was 20 or 30 to one and it was a you know million dollar grade one race and uh, I won it. And, I, and uh, somebody asked me in a winner's circle, hey, uh, did, you, did you talk this over with David Cassidy before? I said, I sure did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Doug Voigt has an illustrious stage career appearing in numerous productions as a singer Actor, producer, horse lover, and close friend of David. They met in 1983 when David took over the lead role from him on Broadway in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Some years later, David, who was starring in EFX in Las Vegas, offered Doug a new direction in his career, inviting him to produce a new show he had created at the Copa. And Doug went on to be David's manager on his US and UK tours. He explains what David was like as a friend and talks about the fears he harbored.
7: Well, he was a lot of marvelous things. He was, he was a man-child. Um, he never wanted to grow old um, and, um, and pretty much didn't. I think that we all know people, even as they get older, is that, that we don't get old. We don't allow ourselves to get old, even though we don't feel great every day and I think David was one of those people even when he was young and he was youthful and he was playful he liked to laugh he loved to laugh he was a very nurturing friend um he was good with people and um and you know a lot of people found that amazing remember David had the largest fan club of anyone. And so that kind of amazing success oftentimes goes to one's head and people can be unkind. That was not the case with David. It really wasn't. He was afraid of large crowds because because um, he was a little guy. He was a short little guy. and um, And he was afraid of being harmed because he was such a huge star. So
1: I've heard stories over the years that that even if he finds himself in a lift with other people, he felt vulnerable
7: mm-hmm. It's true that was absolutely true um even when we were out on the road because we had we we did so many things together over the years um when we rehooked again, and even when it was not he wasn't as as popular when he was later on in his career as far as as far as we always sold we always sold out but he was absolutely sure that if he was in a lift or if he was stuck wandering through a corridor that he would be harmed because he was he was a teen idol and he remembered that and i I used to always have to say "David, it's not it's not wimbledon anymore (laughs) you know it's not it's not wembley rather it's 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 different, and uh, but but he had been so used to being mauled by his fans that yes, he he always wore a black a black baseball cap pulled down really low, and he'd always avert his eyes down, and that he felt safer. You know, we hear it a lot from celebrities today that that the biggest problem that they have with their celebrity is that they are celebrities and they have no private life. Did
1: you worry about him a lot of the time? I worried about him, yeah.
7: I mean, He, he would terrorize my life sometimes. He would, he, if you look at where he came from and the success that he had early on, I think that that becomes a big problem in just how you deal with life. I always said that if David had his own way, he would like to just smoke cigars, golf, and buy horses and then oh on the other side i'd like to be back on stage and have adoring fans i always thought that david was kind and i thought that people always felt that he was not full of himself it's not like david was a saint i mean david and i were fast and um but i think that david really was a nice guy
1: I'm very excited to welcome Bruce Kimmel, perhaps the most popular returning guest on the Partridge Family television series. He made an immediate impact with the viewers and cast, striking an instant chemistry with David Cassidy, Shirley Jones and Susan Day. In this special episode, Bruce recalls how the cast made him feel like one of the family, his friendship with David, and speaks movingly about the man he knew. Of the... Um characters that you played in the Partridge family you had Freddie and Marvin and Richard and Howard did you call on real people to create those characters to bring those personalities to life
8: only myself I'm not that kind I was never that kind of an actor I'm the kind of an actor people ask me what's a good actor and I said the actors who show up know their lines hit their marks and go eat and (laughs) gets (laughs) the job done you know I I worked for years and years and years in television. And I used to get upset that directors never said anything to me. <clears throat> and I was always petrified that I wasn't good enough. And I finally went to a director, finally went to somebody, I said, why don't you ever give me direction? What He said, he said, because you're doing a good job. Why would I give you a, a note? I said, oh, okay, so I'm good. Then. So, But uh, no, I was always, you know, a nerdy kind of, nerdy boy uh <laughs> no i never i, I was never I, I don't i don't understand actors who do do all this stuff okay. and become the thing you know i just was I, I was funny and i guess and i did it and that was it
1: you walked onto that first scene as Loi's boyfriend freddie you were just like the boys we were at school with for yeah. <laughs> yeah. better or worse, yes. No, no, no. <laughs> in, in that way, that they're mer- they're so nervous to meet your mother, and then your brother sits and kind of grills you, and I puts
8: you his know. arm around you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it it was just perfect, and you just seemed to have a really good chemis- chemistry for it from the beginning. Can you remember how many times you had to do that scene?
8: One. It was so. Funny, because we rehearsed it once. You know, it's all in pieces. So the entrance was one piece. I don't think we did that first. I think we did the couch scene first. So we sat down and ran. And David and I just, it was like, bring it on. You know, we're perfect together. We're absolutely perfect together. And so the timing, crew was laughing at the rehearsal. and, And Mel Swope, who was directing it, said, shoot it. It was one take, and then the coverage. All of it was one take. I don't think we did two takes of anything. So uh, on that one, it was really, really super simple, I have to say. It was a natural, and I loved them all, and they loved me. It was just one of those things, you walk on a set, and it's like, oh, I just came home. You know, it's just like, I'm home. This is my, my family. And that's why they kept bringing me back, because they all wanted me to be there. And, you know, as with anyone who uh, was heterosexual, is heterosexual, if you walk on a set and see Susan Day, you fall in love. You know, and you, how can you not crush on that face? Yeah. So coming back was always a pleasure, if only for crushing on that face, especially in the follow-up episode, which happened that year. I mean, that, was, that was the same season. So to be brought back, I think it was like five or six shows later in the same season as a completely different person. Nobody did that back then. And that was really fun because it was a lot large part.
1: Yes, it was because you had a line in there where you were talking to Susan as Laurie saying that she was really nice. She was the prettiest girl in school. Right. That was said with so much genuine affection. Uh, did you notice that her and David and the others were actually growing as, as actors each time you worked? Oh,
8: yeah. They, they were so comfortable in their own skins. You know, after a year on a series is, is what happens. You know, and David, of course, would have chemistry with his mother, but, I mean, with his stepmother. Yeah. Uh, uh, but everybody on that show, even Danny, you know, Danny was very rambunctious and not tameable, uh, but I always got along great with Danny, and he'll tell you that. But that was the most fun. And the director was a great, wonderful director named Jerry London who yeah. went on to do Shogun and all these big, big things. I ran into him about 15 years ago at the Director's Guild. And I said, I don't know if you remember, you remember. I love that scene. And he did. He loved the scene with Shirley.
1: And then on the other extreme in that episode, you've got David singing to you. Well, that was was nice. I have
8: never, never, I've never understood the subtext of this, uh, and I don't try. But it makes me laugh every time I see it because I'm trying to look at Susan, and that thing, you know, I'm doing my little goofy smile, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and David's like, "Okay, this is new. This is interesting." This is radical for television in 1971, but I I liked it. I just thought it was very funny. And, you know, and doing that scene with Susan was so easy. It was just so easy because we liked each other. I mean, it was just, we had real chemistry. I mean, you can just see it in that, especially for me, but you can just see it in that scene. There's such chemistry. He's, he was fantastic. He was a, a, such a natural actor, nothing forced. You know, I, 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 he, he. I don't know why he didn't go into movies because he's a natural. He was a natural, but his comedy timing—you never had to worry with him. It was just give and take, All, always give and take, give and take. Same with Susan.
1: Would you have ever considered getting David into one of your plays?
8: Yes. Of course, anytime I would have worked with him anytime, and if he was struggling, I would have been there for him, you know. But we—that wasn't our relationship later, you know. In the old days, you know, we'd talk all the time. He would come over, I would come over. But people have their, you know, demons. And uh, as I've said on many occasions, I, people have asked me how was it this? How did you, did you see that side of him? I said no, I never saw that side of him, and I don't want to talk about that side of him because that's not my what I knew of him.
9: To me, he was always
8: a great guy. To me, I never saw his demons. To me, he was never alcoholic. To me, you know, whatever he did, I don't know what he did. I wasn't there. And I know the unfortunate part of it is, is people who do have those demons and do that stuff don't age well. And he, you know, would have looked better probably in his later years had he not done that stuff. But you know, you can't tell people what to do. You can't direct their lives. But yes, had he ever had a project ever come up, even just to have him come sing in the studio, I would have done it instantly. I adored him. I, I just adored him. Hello, I'm Jim Solomanis. I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm listening to the David Cassidy Connections podcast with Louise.
1: This week my special guest is talking to me about his amazing life journey which took him from being a songwriter for the Partridge family to discovering, producing and managing Bruce Springsteen. Mike Appel always wanted to be a songwriter and musician starting his career in the Brill Building which was the heartbeat of the music industry in New York. With his writing partner Jim Kretikos five songs they penned together were recorded by the Partridge family. The Million Seller, Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted, along with I Can Feel Your Heartbeat, Somebody Wants to Love You, Rainmaker, and Umbrella Man. In our conversation, Mike talks about the skills he has learnt from other songwriters, his own writing technique, the first meeting of songwriters gathered at the pilot showing of the Partridge family and the legacy of that music, and he also explains how he would have managed David Cassidy. Doesn't somebody want to be wanted? I said,
9: okay, I got it, Wes. Boom, boom, boom. That's it. No, I got it. Don't worry about it. He said, okay, Mike. And he disappeared. That would be all he'd ever do on it. we do the way we write the whole rest of the song completely. And we'd put his name on it because we knew if we put his name on it, we were bound to get it cut. I go
10: downtown and roam around, but every street I walk, I find another dead end. I'm on my own, but I'm so all alone. I need somebody so i won't have to pretend i know there's someone just waiting somewhere i look around for her but she's just not there oh, somebody want to be like
9: me? it's just great It's some things are just will never change and and, and i and i love it jimmy ivy says i don't know he says you know the world's going to 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 Heavy music, we had Sarah Lord Baltimore already produced, okay? So we already knew what heavy music was all about, <laughs> and, you know? And here comes Bruce Springsteen down the road, you know, like maybe we don't want to, maybe this is going to make us look funny if we're doing this kind of stuff. Maybe we'll, we'll start to lose some credibility. I don't know. But anyway, we started to do some of the songs. And some of the songs, when I listen to them now, are not as kiddy as I thought they were when I was doing them. They're not as kitty. Like for instance, I listened to this morning to Rainmaker and I said, Rainmaker, I said, you know, and, and some of these other ones, somebody wants to love you. And, and I can hear your heartbeat, feel hear your heartbeat, Our umbrella man. I said, well, they have changes. I didn't think we put in those damn songs. Is that, is that I can't believe we did that. And that's why people come up to me. No, I've had, I've had people, it depends on who the people are. They're out there by the millions. We hit a massive audience. There are, there are women there, there, that if, if I go to, and I tell them who I am, they say, you wrote for David Cassie. You wrote that so They'll fall in love. I can't get that no matter how, what I do. <laughs>
10: mm-hmm. I can feel your heartbeat and you didn't even say a word. I can feel your heartbeat and you didn't even say a word. Oh, I know, pretty woman, that you love to be heard You can feel my heart beat, too I can tell you're feeling me You can feel my heartbeat too I can tell you're feeling me On your own, far away from home There doesn't seem to be a friend when you're alone People stare, you wonder if they care So you turn your back on someone with love to share Try to see It's gotta be Loving one another is the only possibility So when you're down And losing ground Don't get to thinking love can't be found turn to gray. Raindrops are falling, but why stop and call it a day? There'll be no stormy weather as long as you're with me. Our love's so together. Girl, I love you. You can not depend on me.
9: He he was as good looking as they come. I don't know any group. Maybe Davy Jones was 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 another kind of good looking face, but I don't think he was as good looking as David Cassidy. David Cassidy's like the best looking kid, you know, from 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 a, a, a teenage idol standpoint. Maybe Rick Nelson, but Rick mm-hmm. Nelson had that guitar player always in there. He was a funky guitar player, so he got a little bit more of the the rock audience then D- david did once you go into that boob tube and you're as good looking as you are and you saw what happened with the beatles didn't you when they all went on the boob tube the dad sullivan show huh did you see that, what happened there what do you mean i'm just like anybody else no you're not <laughs> so west got it right not that i thought of it but west got it right and And I can see how David might think that, you know, that's uh, harkening back to another era, a doo-wop era where they like kind of like talking in the middle of the song. You are already on record, literally, no pun intended, doing this thing. And you didn't, when it was time to step out of that studio and, and say no to everybody, say no to everybody. I don't blame you for saying yes, because hey, you know, maybe you thought you could do it later, but you couldn't. Maybe you didn't think that far ahead. However, fact is, the fact that you didn't walk away when Wes first did that little talk part in the beginning, in the middle of uh, doesn't somebody want to be wanted, that was your moment to get out. And then, then my friend, you'd have to help you find guys like me or Wes Farrell again to get a hold of you and help you over that and help you into uh, a record A&R office and and that you'd have the material good enough, original enough to get signed big time. OK, fella, a lot of that's a lot of maybes there. OK, right now you're being given an absolute. All the rest is maybe. Eh, maybe I'll run into Michael Pell. Maybe I'll be just like Bruce Springsteen. Maybe I'll be like Eric Clapton. Maybe I'll be like Keith Richards. Not happening. Let's hope whoever you who's ever under there that you're trying to take orders from. Let's hope that there really is a talent as big as those people that you play their songs so for the comparison. Okay, let's hope that you actually did have that and that you were wrong and that you were too young making decisions that later on you'd pay for. But that's the way it goes in your particular life. I Maybe mean, next time when you come back, be a superstar in whatever you love and you'll do it that time. Hopefully, if you want to do that, hopefully somebody will be there like me to help you along. And that's what I would say to them if I could say that to him, yeah. but I can't say that to him. And I feel terrible about all of the rest that happened because all the rest is baloney. It's what you say that really matters. He wanted to do this. He was a bit of a guitar player. He had a, a bit of a talent for doing that. Was he as good as, you know, Eddie Van Halen? Well, who is, but the, but the fact is, uh, you know, I don't know that he, he would have been that good. So that he could have had his own band been the leader of his own band because he was like Jimmy Page.
1: Jay Gruska is a songwriter, composer and producer with an impressive portfolio. He has been responsible for some of the best loved themes for film and television. He received an Emmy nomination for his soundtrack to the television series Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Jay wrote for and with David. He explains his contribution to I Never Saw You Coming, which appeared on David's Getting It in the Street album, which Jay worked on, and they later co-wrote the theme for the Man Undercover television series in which David starred. In 2009, Jay was composer, co-songwriter and music producer on the popular but short-lived sitcom Ruby and the Rockets. If you search for some of the episodes on youtube you will discover a young austin butler who recently portrayed elvis in the title film playing the role of one of david's nephews jay explains here how i never saw you coming was written
11: yeah so that's an interesting story that i don't think people know i mean that song was originally written by bill Mooney, david jolliffe and myself and then uh I forget what the process was, but at some point I must have played, either played it on the piano and sang it for David, or maybe there was a little demo. I don't even remember. And he liked it, but had some additional thoughts on it, other thoughts on it. And um, so we ended up working it that way. You know, we went up to a ranch called Caribou Ranch in, in Colorado, Uh, the whole band and those guys and, it's amazing we got any work done because it was just so beautiful up there and horses and you know I mean, but um, that that's that's what I, I can't even tell you exactly, but I think that's it was either David Jolliffe and the whole circle people because I was I was yet to meet Sean. I hadn't met him for another few years because he was all of 15 around then. but uh, yeah, David and I and we just you know got along. Instantly. And, um, you know, I was in awe of the intensity of, of his, what his fame was just a few years prior. I mean, and so that took a minute to just sort of weed through that and see, oh, there's a good soul there. And you know, he's funny and, and bright and, um, and, and knew what he wanted.
1: When you were invited to work with him on the Getting It In The Street album, yeah um what did it mean
11: to him? I think it represented him officially breaking out of the partridge persona. Um, and, and I think you know, I think later in life he appreciated those songs too, but at, in that moment, he wanted to explore more uh, more liberated rock pop rock expression. I don't want to confine it with with badly perceived words on my part, but um, I think it, it represented, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. And I'm just going to do it. And, and that was the spirit of, of the whole process of pre, pre-production going up to Caribou Ranch. And then I, I, we did some overdubs here in Los Angeles. And what I got from him was that um, he didn't want to feel boundaries of where he could go. And so if a song required a jazz saxophonist to come in, that's what he wanted. And if a song was more of a rocking song and that's what he wanted, if it was a ballad. I mean, so he, you know, I, I respected that. I liked it and he made it fun. I think he wanted to work with people that were like-minded, but also I think it was important for him to be able to hang, to hang with someone. Not just if they had chops in their area, not just if they were a good songwriter or a good musician or a good producer or whatever. He wanted the, the interpersonal component was important to him. And that was just very obvious, you know, and he had such a distinctive, cool sound. And it got even I, I liked it later years also because he got a little more gravelly. And I liked the uh, the vintage nature of that. Not quite the full Rod Stewart, but just a little bit of that that gravelly com- component I just thought was a really fantastic side of his voice. But he also had croony range. Uh, um, but as a singer, you got his heart. You got his who he was. I think that you got David there. And I loved his tone. I can't offer much bigger compliment than that.
1: Retired from teaching, we thought she would have more time on her hands, but life has been busier than ever. Therefore, it is great to finally connect with Barb Collantine. We have known each other through Facebook for some years, and Barb has been a David fan for more than half a century. She created and runs the David Cassidy Virtual Fan Club and is president of the I Think I Love You Animal Foundation, established in David's memory. She was lucky enough to meet David and hopefully will talk to us about her own brush with Velvet. And she also has a dog named, of course, Cassidy. Here, Barb explains how the music changed so much in her life and led her to a teaching career.
12: As soon as I was given my first album, which I I want to say it was, had probably was up to date. That's when everything changed for me because the music really, um, impacted me and um it made me pay more attention to David and then of course he was so you know good looking obviously um and I just fell in love with the show and him and um never looked back never looked back never been out of my life that is
1: such a strong presence for so many young girls as well as boys as well but for you why was he so important
12: this is going to sound really weird but um I'm a teacher. I was an English teacher. Words have been my whole life. I've loved to read since I was a kid. You know, big chapter books, they call them, whatever. And um, I I never saw him in concert when I was a little kid, which I feel, you know, very regretful about. But, you know, what can you do? Uh, I saw him when he was older and stuff like that. And, you know, I hear these stories about these kids, like women or whatever, throwing their underwear or just throwing these personal, you know, things at him or saying like all these Roman you know, obviously he was adorable and I loved him and I, and I thought he was really cute and I had his posters and stuff. But for me, I really think it was the music and the lyrics that um, really, really impacted me enormously as an eight and nine-year-old, 10-year-old little girl. I mean, I'm just starting to read. I'm just starting to learn to love language. And I would look at, I would listen to the records, like Up to Date, Sound Magazine, and I would be listening to the lyrics and think to myself you know i'm reading like little house in the prairie and i'm reading like charlotte's web these books you know and i'm and i'm i'm thinking to myself even as like a 10 or 11 year old as i'm becoming more aware i'm like oh you can do that like with words you can do that in a song like and like and i have to like really credit tony romeo to that because i really feel like he was just as huge an influence on me and the way my life went than david And I get a little emotional here. Um, The lyrics of the songs, the Tony Romeo songs, were life-changing for me. They really showed me that there were no rules when it came to writing. Um, And you, as long as you were expressing yourself, you could do it in any way you want. Like some of those songs, like I I can't even rattle them all off. I mean, we'd be here for hours. But just like together, the song Together, Um, on the Notebook album. The first couple of lines of that song, they're so clever. They're so um, unique in terms of them and running and hiding. And so they didn't want to be caught with their love and all that. And uh, just you know, the cleverness of of songs like that. I mean, I can't even think of them off the top of my head, but I really, really looked at, listened to those songs and um, thought to myself, wow, that's clever. And I'm 10, I'm 10. I'm not like 25, I'm 10 years old and I'm going, wow, that's clever. That's cute. Oh, that's a great sentence. Or and so that's really what the impact for me was, was the songs and of course the performances on the TV show. David was just like, come on. I mean, he just belted these songs out. And I mean, I find it hard to believe, you know, he didn't like the Partridge family. Of course he did. You could see him singing his heart out in these songs like in these clips even the guy's amazing it's just amazing so so that's that but that was a big big impact for me was that if that makes any sense
1: it does completely because so many people will say oh I was influenced by the Partridge family music to become a songwriter um, to become a performer to pick up the guitar for you it turned out to be a career as a English teacher
12: yeah, as a writer, as somebody who loved to play with words, somebody who who even when I read other books, obviously stuff I didn't write, I would look at a sentence and go, wow, that's a great sentence. And I would look at it again and I would just read it again and I would just kind of stop and savor it. Just kind of like the, with the Partridge family music, you know, when I'm, I'm listening to it now on my eye on my phone, when I'm walking the dog and I just stop in my tracks and I get like teary eyed, like the, the, it's sublime. The music is sublime. I mean, you had John Baylor on, I, I just so educational for me. I just, I think I cried after it was over. It was, I, I love that man. Yeah. That man is amazingly talented. I, there was so much about him I didn't know. I couldn't get enough of him talking. His, his experience with that and his credibility that he lended to those sessions and the lyrics that, you know, that people um, kind of scoffed off the, the music. And it's like, no, <laughs> mm. no, there's some real talent there. And it it did change the way I write and think about words.
1: My very special guest today is Ron Hickling. He describes himself as a hidden star whose voice has featured as a background singer on thousands of recordings, around 100 number one hits, up to 400 movies, television themes including Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Flipper, plus radio and television commercials. When a new television sitcom series was suggested in 1969, Ron, who had built up a reputation as a hitmaker, was taken on board to recruit the singers and create the sound of the Partridge family. The original idea was for the cast to lip-sync to the recordings, which would have been the standard for the franchise, until producers discovered that promising young actor David Cassidy could sing. Here are some of those recordings before and after David took over the lead vocals.
10: With no song You can remember that once upon a love affair Your heart was warm, your lips were tender And I didn't care, baby
1: Did it ever bother you that people never knew who you were?
13: Not at all. In fact, it was a chosen situation because uh, when I came down from the University of Washington, where I was uh, in pre-med and I came down and Capitol Records signed uh, my group that I formed when I was 11 years old. and so we were signed with Capitol Records, and it was a seven-year contract that we signed at the same time as Glenn Campbell and a few of us all signed together. Mm. And I was about two years into it and realized, this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to be on stage doing choreography, doing the same songs over and over. Uh, how boring. Uh, what I love to do was to sing. As far as getting in front of a crowd and being witty and carrying on a great dialogue or do stuff like that, that wasn't who I was, I was very shy. And, and even though I was the lead singer in the group, I felt like I wanted to uh, just sing the song. My, my whole career I thought when I got involved is if you were going to be a singer, uh, you were either a recording artist or you were a teacher. Uh, and I, I came from a long line of teachers. Uh, my 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 mom and dad, my brother, everybody, and six aunts were all teachers. And I was the student. I was the the one that was getting the best grades and all that stuff. Except I had this God-given talent that I decided I got to give this a shot. And the shot turned out to be a little different from what our. Preconceived idea of what uh, what a singer did. I became a technician with my singing, and I loved working in the studios because I worked with all the giants in the industry, and I had my pick of of hiring all the talent that I auditioned and putting together successful things, and just uh, working, you know, from that anonymous way of working to where we were running from one job to the next i the most i ever did in one day was seven sessions in a day
1: do you believe that everyone has a strength and that you were built, you were finding their strengths and yes. bringing them out so that
13: yes yes and i do believe that that with some people in the room i felt i could do anything i felt dynamic i felt i felt Funny, I felt uh, intelligent. I felt creative. I felt everything else. And with other people in the room, I felt like it was a total brain of, and sapping of my energy. Yeah.
1: Mm. It's about man management. But at the end of the day, you've all got to be, pardon the pun, singing from the same sheet.
7: Yes. And yes. if
1: you've got any weak link, so then you have to establish why is that person the weak link? How can yeah. I make them stronger and bring them back in.
13: The best part I can say in my career is because I did my homework. I made sure that the people I, bring, I brought in, I didn't have to make something special. They were
7: something special.
1: Because obviously everything changed once they realized that David had an extremely good and unique singing voice. I'm not a musician. I'm not a singer, I've never worked in record production, but going back to 1969, 1970, those first sessions, how do you put a hit record together? How does a recording happen? Because I'm wondering if you ever worked with David in the studio at the same time, or if he lays down his vocals and then you come in and do yours. Can you explain how that works?
13: Uh, Yes, I would be, Normally, in most of the situations, I would be working within the mix structure, mixing later to get the sound right, to to doing all the things that I did for nothing, uh, just to make sure that what we were doing was a hit. What I uh, limited myself to was to listen to playbacks and to say, "Uh, we can do better than that, or we can do this, or we can do that, uh, or I hear something here that's not right. and then we would do it that way. But David was already recorded when we would walk in, when uh, Jackie and I and Tom and, and John would walk in to do our backgrounds. David was already recorded. And then we would just put on the backgrounds to complement that. Uh, one thing that you probably are aware of, but I'm not sure that you're aware of, but having talked to the other people in the group, uh, they may have told you this, but in the first big record, I think I love you. Now that was a big, big uh, number one record. So uh, as we did that, we listened to David's voice and the low part in that bridge turnaround. He didn't have those notes. He couldn't sing those notes. They were below his range. He was kind of struggling with that. And so Tom and I Actually, dubbed in those voices on those low notes as we got there. You know, don't know what to talk about. You know. Anyway, we were down there doing that, and it just kind of like blends into what's happening. And then, uh, and then David's, you you know, right back into it.
10: so much
14: to think about. Hey, I think I love you, so what am I so...
10: Little things like that
13: uh, were put together, but most of the time it was not. It was only on that one record where I felt like we ever really had to con- uh, augment David's voice in any particular manner other than what we were doing as a vocal group behind him. I didn't know David at that point. I didn't know what a you know on-screen personality he was, or or anything else. And to this day, I say the successes that we had as the Partridge Family would not have happened without David. Uh, David was the lead sound. David was the biggest thing since Presley, as far as I'm concerned. When he hit the market, it was the vehicle that they needed to be commercial, and so. Uh, what we did was we created a sound around that that became the partridge family. Without that vehicle, David wouldn't have had the opportunity to do what he's doing. Uh, so all of that was a perfect time in history to, to fall together of all those pieces. So it didn't matter whether everybody uh, thought I like the material that we're doing or this that, or that, the other thing. It was this is the job we're trying to do. Uh, That plays into a role like David's or anybody else. When you become this character, then you're almost that character for life, whether you like it or not. And I think with David, there was always this this discontent over not wanting to be just Keith Partridge for the rest of his life. And that speaks volumes because uh, your demographic expects you to be that. And that's too bad that's too bad for the artist because the artist says, well, I can't leave my demographic behind and yet they're not following me into a different thing because that's not the music they want, period. And so it's, it's very difficult. Uh, In answering how I felt about David, I think he was the biggest sensation in the record industry since Elvis. And I strongly feel that. But it was limited to what it was. It was exactly what it was. You wouldn't expect him to be doing some other thing that required a whole different set of chops. Uh, It was just, this is the perfect moment for, for David and the perfect vehicle to do what he did. And nobody could have done it better.
1: David Cassidy took over the lead role in the $75 million extravaganza EFX in 1996. Under his creative vision, the show was given a new lease of life and became the most successful production in Las Vegas. The show landed a number of awards, with David voted Best All-Round Performer and Best Singer. Working alongside him during his time on the show and later productions at The Copa and The Rat Pack is Back was his personal assistant, Robin Haddon. David replaced Michael Crawford, who had hand-picked Robin to be his personal assistant, And she continued that role with David.
0: So when Michael left the show, Michael had um, had an injury and he left the show. And so they went on for a little bit that we had understudies and all of that who had done the show for a bit. And then we had heard that David was coming. And I had said to my mom, you know, who she was like, oh, my gosh, you know. So uh, my mom was born in the same year that David was. I can tell you that I can remember the first time that I saw him because uh, he, he had come in, he came in to meet people. He can, and then he, you know, they, the MGM did all the stuff to get him settled and all that stuff. And then they had said to me, you know, I was already the star personal assistant. Did I want to be David's personal assistant? And so I said, you know, okay. I remember going into the showroom and um, when he, was in effects. They had we called it the flying disc. But like when he stood on the thing and it kind of like went across the stage and all that stuff. I just remember kind of going in, and here he's flying on the on the disc or whatever. And I was sitting kind of close to the front. He I just remember him kind of swooping down kind of in front of me. And then there was nobody in the audience. There were only like you know production people in the house or whatever. So I was sitting up there with whoever was going to introduce me to him. And he just gave me a look and like all that kind of stuff. And um, I was like okay, he's going to be all right. (laughs) He, you know, he just, um, and he, and he really was, he was, he was, um, he was, he was different that I had two different experiences and all that stuff, but I really, I was really, really close to David. And when he, when he just swooped down like that, I was like, okay, I kind of get like what this big deal about him is all about. He just had, you know, he had something about him that, you know, people, you swoon. Yes.
1: Yes. Indeed. From your point of view, because you weren't, Uh, around to witness the Cassidy mania in the 1970s did it surprise you this outpouring of love and affection all these years later and did it surprise him how did it affect
0: him at the MGM I can remember um, he would he'd be hired to do things like to make other appearances and there was like Studio 54 that was within the MGM and so Sometimes somebody that he'd be like asked to make an appearance to go to Studio 54 or whatever. And if we were in the theater and we, or if we were in the hotel and we were walking like from the theater to Studio 54, you just couldn't do it all backstage. And so he'd have to walk through the casino. And so we'd have um, security with us. Um, But I can remember one time like walking back and people just recognizing him and we were standing side by side and people just started to kind of swoop in on top of us. And I was not used to that, like at all. And he looked at me and he just, he put his arm around me and he said, he said, look at me. So I looked at him and he, we were, you know, he had his arm around me and he said, just keep walking. We'll just keep walking. He said, I mean, we just keep walking. He said, if we're talking and we're walking, you know, we'll, we'll be just fine. And so that's what we did. And we had security with us, but it was really funny because all of a sudden it was like, once people started to recognize it was him, people started to, you know, come closer and, you know, that sort of thing. And that was, I felt a little vulnerable. I had traveled with him to, I mean, he was in this huge show. He was a star of this like huge show. I think it was kind of a mesh of his talent, his Broadway, like the acting, the singing, like all of that stuff, like all together. And I think, you know, he, he was very, very popular in Las Vegas in the show. And Las Vegas was a place at the time that he was there, where he would always say, where else can you go in the world where like within a mile radius, you have like all of these like really big celebrities. So it would be people. um, It was, I think, probably a little bit prior to people having um, residencies at hotels, Um, having to sell out shows six nights a week. That's a lot. I mean, that's that's a lot to do. And he was, you know, he was able to do all of that. So. I think that speaks a lot for, um, you know, his validity and talent and, you know, how much he loved his audiences and how much they loved him, you know, that sort of thing. I think that that was really a successful piece of his history and especially to be able to do it kind of like later in a career. Yes. You know, I just told him, I said, these are the times of my life and I, I know it. (laughs) Mm. I mean, he really was, he really did care. He just, he cared about people. And I mean, that was, that was really good to see because there was he had so many different types of people who cared and adored for him and um I will say too I mean working for a celebrity isn't always easy I mean there there are some unrealistic expectations I think you know when um you know there you, you're not like uh, a quote like normal person in the sense that if I need something I have to go out and get it and if he would need something he has people that can go get it for him you know type of thing what did you learn from him oh boy Um, oh, that's a good question.
1: And I'm delighted to welcome Dale Cunningham. Dale is a lifelong fan who reflects in our conversation on the time as a little boy, the impact David had on his life. Dale explains how he considered David to be an important role model for him and talks about David's dreams and nothing more than wishes album.
15: Sound magazine, and then of course Cheris came out, and that one, yeah, I just played it nonstop. Even listening to it today, you know, song so a lot of sad songs really on it. I think his voice lends itself to those songs very well. The deep tones would dra- draw you in, and then he'd have that, you know, they always refer to it as the breathy sound. I've heard mentioned a lot, yeah. you know, and, and that really kind of brings in the dreamy part of, you know, what made all the girls swoon at the time, you know, like Blind Hope and well. My my first night alone without you. I remember I used to play that constantly. Well, I am a clown. I used to listen to back then. I, I really haven't heard it in quite a while. It, so it doesn't really, you know, I haven't really heard it lately, but you know, like I lost my chance. Songs like that. I always, even back then I remember there being my favorites. It's yeah. kind of interesting that the sad ones would be my favorites, you know, mm. you know, I mean, like I mentioned to you, it, had, it was an interesting point in our family's life because by that point, eh, you know, my parents had separated. I was born in Miami, Miami, Florida, and we lived in Hialeah, which was like a suburb of Miami. till I was probably seven, you know, maybe the year I turned eight, you know, that's when they separated. But then once they separated, they decided my mom would move back here to Iowa. And so they decided that it would be smart for my mom to move here and my dad would stay in Florida. He wasn't in the picture, you know, pretty much was, you know, I mentioned that in your book. And and it was it, it, my mom was real good. I mean, she went out of her way not to bad talk him or say anything in my presence. But a kid knows, you know, a kid overhears stuff, you know, it's not, you know, whether it's in the other room or whatever. So, you know, something's just not quite right with the picture. And at the time, again, this would be the same time that discovered the Barters family and David Cassidy. And I'm sure a lot of that void, whatever void was there, whether I knew it at the time or thought about it at the time, I know some of my obsession for David was because my dad probably wasn't in the picture and whatever, it filled that void. As an adult, I've never really... I felt, I never felt like marriage certainly doesn't have the appeal to me that maybe it would have if I had come from that situation. But I was basically from the age seven and a half, eight on, raised by my mom and my grandma. So that was the home. That was the normal home for our life. And if you look at the Partridge family, there wasn't a father in that either. So maybe there was a, you know, some attachment to that. Well, this is different than, this is a much more, well, it's a much more mature, the material was more adult, I think, is the thing. You know, Bali High, May, Fever even, you know, even the remake of Summer Days, which I put as one of my all-time favorites, was totally different. And just kind of, I was kind of taken aback by it. Of course, Daydreamer is wonderful, and, and the singing is wonderful. It seems like it's a higher pitch. You know, I mean, like the higher side of his voice, I think he used on that album. And it's, I enjoy listening to it now. But I remember at that time being, wow. And this is the album that, you know, went number one overseas, you know? So, and, and, and it's great stuff. But it, like I said, it was just not what I was used to, which is the same thing with um, The Higher They Climb, which came out that. Was, i had no problem. i'm not sure that one was maybe because it was the first one from rca maybe that's why it was so available here and that one what was interesting about that where i was taken aback by the one i was this was like a what's the word i want to use uh was um what well, was a shock it was actually a shock to the system in a way nice. because of the visuals the visual the album cover visual the visual of the story that the album tells you know the rise and the fall and you're just like, well, This is the fall of my idol. That's in the back of the cover is literally David Cassidy, you know, fallen to earth. So that was a little rough on the system, you know, as a as a fan, as a little young teen, early teen fan. I'm not even sure if I was a teenager, to be honest. Did those images alarm you? Well, yeah, they were. I think, yeah, a little, a little bit. You know, I mean, that's very strong imagery. Imagery. The music was very good when I'm a rock and roll star and I would listen to it all the time. Common Thief was one I seemed to be elevated towards. Maybe the theatrics of it or whatever it was. But again, it fit right in with that cover, that back cover, that kind of, you know, the dark side. But I thought, well, you know what? This is, it was almost like he was doing a musical exorcism of the previous four years. That's basically what that album represents, I think, is exercising Keith Partridge, exercising the teen idol, the, the concerts, everything that he went through. I think he was like, okay, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm getting rid of that today with this album. And he did. I mean, I think he really succeeded in that regards because when you listen to the following album, it's like, okay, now he's having fun. You go from, all right, let's get rid of this. Let's get the, let's get the kinks out or whatever. And then Home is Where the Heart Is, he takes off and he has fun and it helps that they have all the pictures of them having fun. But I mean, you know, you can tell he's, he seems to be enjoying himself, making music he wants to do. And it is a great album. I do enjoy, you know, I don't know if my heart is in it as much as it was Rock Me Baby and Cherish because they were earlier. It, it is a highlight, I think, definitely a highlight of his career. And at that time, I think, oh, I don't know. You could just It just seemed like he was doing what he enjoyed.
1: My guest is Tony Mann, a musician, author, costume designer, curator, filmmaker, talent coordinator, music producer, and lifelong David Cassidy fan. Born and raised in New York, Tony has been at the cutting edge of the music scene all his life. He told me he could talk a blue streak about David from the experience of seeing him at Madison Square Garden in 1972, getting to know him and being present at his final show at B.B. King's in 2017. He talks about the respect musicians such as David Bowie and Lou Reed had for David, and the project they had in mind for him, which never happened. We kick off talking about the rock and roll star David always yearned to be. Due to come back here in October of that year
16: Mm -hmm. and
1: play at Earl's Court,
16: Oh, that would have been amazing. And there that, was a
1: suggestion that he was gonna be like a young Mick Jagger.
16: Yeah, well, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, really. I mean, yeah, that should have happened. I mean he yeah, he loved all those bands. Jimi Hendrix, he loved Black Sabbath, he loved he he wanted to be mentioned in the same sentences as these people. Frank Sinatra, Bobby Darin, all the early rock and rollers, Elvis, obviously he was, because they had the similar jumpsuits Elvis called him, they talked for, um, about the jumpsuits and everything with nudie suits. And uh, he wanted to be mentioned and taken very seriously. Like he wanted to be mentioned in the same breath as these kind of people and taken seriously as a musician. And, you know, it really didn't happen. It really, it really didn't. Yeah. But, the, you know, that he did have, you know, people that worked with him all along that were the best musicians of all time the wrecking crew and and how blaine spoke very highly in the baller brothers very highly in the wrecking crew who played on everything the yeah. beach boys didn't play on the records these people did and they said david's a super talent and I, anybody like Lou reed bowie and so he that meant the world to him that they thought highly of him but he was kind of he kind of almost felt like he was being used like a tool also like that Maybe they're just attracted to him physically as a person, which they were. I've heard I've heard people in Maxis, Kansas City say to other people, be my David Cassidy to somebody else. You know what I mean? Like that's like a fantasy role. Like so he was like a fantasy to people and being an actor and being on TV and a celebrity and being a person and a musician was all different things. that he didn't really make it on Broadway at first. In that first play he was in, The Fig Leaves Are Falling. But I did see him in Blood Brothers, and I thought that was really cool. Um, It was great. I'm glad I get to see that with him and Sean and Petula Clark on Broadway. And at the end, Petula Clark came out and sang Downtown. And that was like being accepted by all the peers there. But the same thing, it's like, it's also like he's a celebrity already. He can't kind of go back. Like he kind of wishes he made it in all these fields on his own accord than just the name and face and good looks and blah, blah, blah. But whatever, however you make it, that's how you make it. And if people love you, you just go with the crowd and you connected with so many people. So I kind of tried to say that to him. So I get that, but you just like, you connect with so many people. So it's just, that's great. Like, you can't really pick how that happens. Like, he has an idea of what he would want, the ideal dream of what he wished would happen, which, you know, that he could be mm. a Mick Jagger or, or or Hendrix or, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or whatever, and America, the people he played with, America, he played with Mick Ronson, these guys, you know, Mick Ronson didn't get the credit he deserved, never mind, David got a lot more famous than Mick Ronson, okay, mm. so, but, you know, they all did great stuff, Flo and Eddie, you know, worked with David, they worked with everybody, and they recognized his talent, and his his charisma, and everything about him, and so anybody that's you know alice cooper all these people you know he wished he could be like all that you know and elvis and he could be all that but elvis had his own battles you know um so fame's such a weird thing and people can't pick how they get famous they're just lucky to be become a name and uh it could have been somebody else on that show and they wouldn't have done the singing they wouldn't the song wouldn't have been as big as a hit would have been focused on on shirley the whole thing's so bizarre and magical and of that time and he was obviously trying to self-destruct his career at that one point and just get out you know and uh
1: did he ever uh, talk to you about the frustrations of maybe feeling let down by the industry
16: oh yeah anyone who's worked in the music industry is like any you know just be a plumber okay just be an electrician go to trade school i mean the music industry is there's a lot of famous things about it but it's, it's a real um like trying to catch a butterfly you know it's like try to get paid try. a lot of people you know fame, money, blah, 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 whatever, uh, artistic respect. A lot of people get great reviews. They don't sell any records. A lot of people sell a lot of records. They don't get any money. I've been producing an artist right now, currently, right now. And her name is Carrie Abel, and she's really talented. She has has art galleries, she has, she has a poet, poetry books. I helped her start doing music. I helped her get, like, focus her music. She's streaming, like, 150,000 streams each song. Well, that pays about $50. Yeah. So what do you, what do you eat? You know, like even mm-hmm. if you're popular, that's, and that's like on a, that's not mega popular. There's influencers on Instagram who have like millions of followers, put it this way. She streams probably a million streams. So a dollar each, that'd be a million dollars. But instead it's like a hundred dollars <laughs> so yes. or a thousand dollars. So it just, it's ridiculous. And um, yeah, I mean, everybody who's worked in music is frustrated with music. Okay. You're living for the performance and the fans more than anything. Uh, the studio for some people, it can be super frustrating or great. Like for Brian Wilson, it was a creative playground. For other people, it's a nightmare, and they just want to get on the stage. The traveling is brutal. Traveling is br- brutal. Where's you down, even even in the best circumstances. If you have your own jet, like my friend toured with Iron Maiden, okay, um, for five years, and they're, they're their own plane. They're flying around. That we're going to Easter Island. We're going here. You're still traveling. You're still sacrificing. You don't see your family you don't see your spouse or partner or whatever you don't don't see your kid or whatever the case may be and you're giving that up for your art to entertain people and do what makes you feel like you and uh i think he just ultimately wanted to express who he was and have people love that and just say like you are great and people said that really i mean even when he was a teenager he got more adulation than anybody can even imagine so it's not that but just it's artistically and uh the business thing is just good luck with that anyway the best of them most people have had to have two or three careers to even like look like Aerosmith is still going okay mm. Aerosmith has been up and down and up and down and they had jets and they lost it and they had everything and they lost it and they came back so, uh sometimes you have to have like multiple careers before you start making the first bucks everyone's got their hand out and uh cutthroat industry it's even worse now 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 you and david had that loophole in his contract he would have got paid worse they didn't know he was underage and they had to re-sign him and they had to pay him real money which isn't real money compared to today but then it was yeah. they took his likeness and uh his image and now now if you sign as a kid with any major thing you're not getting anything you could get famous and you're probably not going to get rich you'll make a name and then you'll have to go do something else
1: today my guest is ken Wenk, an award-winning songwriter who has been inspired by the music of David Cassidy, and Lewis's Tony Romeo. Tony wrote many songs recorded under the Partridge Family banner. These included the multi-million selling first hit, I Think I Love You, Summer Days, My Christmas Card to You, It's One of Those Nights, and Morning Rider on the Road, among many others. Ken shares with us some of the original material he has written, including songs influenced by the albums The Partridge Family Christmas Card. Sound Magazine, and Crossword Puzzle. Ken explains his inspiration to write and David's vocal delivery.
17: I feel that David's legacy really comes down to the fact that he touched so many people in so many positive ways. Simple as that, entertainment-wise, personally, and it's just a tribute to who he was.
1: What do you consider Tony Romeo's best songs?
17: Well, my favorite all-time song of all time which he co-wrote uh was Together We are Better. He re- he co-wrote that from the notebook. Now, that's my fit. That's the song that for some reason I mean I would say the closest ones be- behind that my Christmas Card to you, summer days, and the other song I love a lot is uh, I'll never get over you from the Bulletin Board album. That was that was one of my best from uh, Oh, and I think I love you. I forgot. How could I forget that one?
1: There, I <laughs> There's two particular songs that you forgot to mention. One was I Love You. Yeah. The other one, Morning Rider on the Road.
17: That's another great. Yeah. Oh, that's another great song. Yeah. That He, right. He was. uh, Oh, one of the other, one of my favorites is You Are Always on My Mind from the uh, up-to-date album. Just brilliant. And Morning Rider on the Road, the lyric, the story in that was incredible. Hobo in the Sun, I mean, just incredible stuff. It was, it was just, I, it's hard to pick a favorite, but he just had so many. And of course, it's one of those nights and last night. And it just, just so many cornucopia of incredible pop music.
1: If anybody wants to learn about how good a singer David Cassidy was in his early 20s, how outstanding a songwriter Tony Romeo was, would you urge them to listen to every Partridge Family album?
17: Oh, yes. Tony was the only writer who was on every single album. Tony was on every one of the albums from the, the original through uh, Bulletin Board. Yes. If you haven't, they're all out on CDs. The show is out now on box set. Go listen to all that music. Listen to David's Cherish album, Dreams Are More Than Nothing More Than Wishes. And listen to that music. And not only Tony's songs, just listen to that music how incredibly well-crafted pop music and listen to how he delivered there's not one song where i said he could have done a better job never just impeccable right i mean there's no there's no songs that could have been redone any better yeah and you
1: have to wonder whether if anybody else had sung those songs whether they would have had the same impact on us
17: i don't think so I don't think so. He had, there was something magical about his voice that was just, it was just different than every, it had a sleekness. So that's the word I would use. Sleek, very sleek and polished and professional. And it, it just mm. penetrated your soul.
1: <laughs> you know, some people would, would say, well, it's easy to dismiss him as not having any talent because he was a teenage idol. Mm-mm. You don't agree that, with that.
17: Oh, he was so underrated. And it bothered me that he didn't get the recognition that he deserved, you know, because of what? Oh, that's kids music. No, that's not kids music. That's incredibly well-crafted pop songs. And the writers on those, there's so many great writers on those songs that were in the Brill Building and wrote in those era for Wes Farrell. He was so underrated uh, over the years. He just never got the recognition I felt that he deserved. And uh, I just want people to know this music and this person and this, Gift that he gave to all of us was, once in a once in a lifetime.
1: Above that, he was underappreciated.
17: Well, not among the fans who loved him. Th- those people were diehards from the beginning through the end. He was underappreciated by a lot of the world. I think a lot of people scoffed at the Partridge Family music because it wasn't mature enough in their eyes, and it wasn't cool enough or anything. But there was a lot of songs in the albums, Louise, that had like a rock feel. Think about it. I Can Feel Your Heartbeat, I Woke Up In Love This Morning, Roller Coaster. In other words, it wasn't just syrupy sweet music. Wes Farrell created these other kinds of songs that gave it more of a oomph to it. But unfortunately, I think that people would hear the word Partridge Family that weren't diehard fans and say, eh, the Partridge Family, which always got to me so inside, bothered me that it was like not important. But Meanwhile, they sold millions and millions of records, millions, and merchandise, and he was the biggest teen idol of all time.
1: If you have enjoyed today's show or are a new listener, you can catch up with all episodes going back to August 2020 with your preferred podcast provider. So listen, review, and subscribe for free, so you will be among the first to hear when new episodes are released. So until we connect again, take care.